Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Lightspeed. Women destroy science fiction. Welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast and the special month of Women Destroying Science Fiction. I'm your guest host, Mer Lafferty. One thing that always has me thinking, um, I was taking out the trash this morning for some reason, singing the Jetsons theme song, thinking about their little robot maid, and thinking... How strange it was that we could think of a future with automatic appliances and cities in the sky and robot maids, but we couldn't consider women being in a role other than the house. A lot of things are coming up now how people can manage to read lines and lines of Elven or Dothraki or imagine dragons in the sky. But if you ask them to read a couple of lines of Spanish, or imagine a person of color in your story, that is outrageous. So we're putting more people into the future than white dudes with our stories, because they're gonna be there. Whatever our future ends up being, It's not going to be full of white dudes, or if it is, it won't be full of white dudes very long. But realizing this makes me wonder what other changes, not in our technology, but in our societies, that we are not imagining in our science fiction, that in 30 years we'll be going, why didn't we think about this? How backwards thinking were we then? On one hand, it could be how we view gender, but we are writing about them. Perhaps not as much as we should be, but we are. It's hard to imagine something that's not there. And sometimes I wonder what I'm missing. But we are bringing you your fourth story. We're halfway done. Normally, the fourth story would mark the end of the month. We're only halfway through. Yes, with Women Destroying Science Fiction, you are getting a lot more content than in most, or dare I say, all other Lightspeed issues. 180,000 words worth. So you should go to lightspeedmagazine.com and get yourself the full issue. Because we're not even scratching the surface here. But with this week's story, we have Walking Awake by N.K. Jemisin. N.K. Jemisin is a speculative fiction writer and blogger. Her debut novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdom, was nominated for the 2010 Nebula Award, 2011 Hugo Award, and the World Fantasy Award, and was shortlisted for the James Tiptree Jr. Award, and won the 2011 Sense of Gender Award. That's her first book, guys. Wow. The story is narrated for us by actress and audiobook narrator, Bonnie Turpin. So buckle up, we're going to light speed.
Walking Awake by N.K. Jemison. The master who came for Henri was wearing a relatively young body. Sadie guessed it was maybe 50 years old. It was healthy and in good condition, still handsome. It could last 20 years more, easily. Its owner noticed Sadie's stare and chuckled. I never let them get past 50, the master said. You'll understand when you get there. Sadie quickly lowered her gaze. Of course, sir. It turned the body's eyes to examine Henri, who sat very still in his cell. Henri knew Sadie could see at once. She had never told him. She never told any of the children because she was their caregiver, and there was nothing of care in the truth. But Henri had always been more intuitive than most. She cleared her throat. Forgive me, sir, but it's best if we return to the transfer center. He'll have to be prepped. Ah, yes, of course, the master said. Sorry, I just wanted to look him over before my claim was processed. You never know when they're going to screw up the paperwork. It smiled. Sadie nodded and stepped back, gesturing for the master to precede her away from the cell. As they walked to the elevator, they passed two of Sadie's assistant caregivers, who were distributing the day's feed to 14 male. Sadie caught Caridad's eye and signed for them to go and fetch Henri. No ceremony. A ceremony at this point would be cruel. Caridad noticed, twitched elaborately, got control of herself and nodded. Olivia, who was deaf, did not look up to catch Sadie's signing, but Caridad brushed her arm and repeated it. Olivia's face tightened in annoyance, but then smoothed into a compliant mask. Both women headed for cell 47. The children here all seem nicely fit, the master commented as they stepped into the elevator. I got my last body from Southern, skinny as rails there. Exercise, sir. We provide a training regimen for those children who want it. Most do. We also use a nutrient blend designed to encourage muscle growth. Ah, yes. Do you think that new one will get above two meters? He might, sir. I can check the breeder history. No, no, never mind. I like surprises. It threw her a wink over one shoulder. When it faced forward again, Sadie found her eyes drawn to the crab-like form half-buried at the nape of the body's neck. Even as Sadie watched, one of its legs shifted just under the skin, loosening its grip on the tendons there. She averted her eyes. Caridad and Olivia came down shortly. Henri was between the two women, dressed in the ceremonial clothing, a plain, low-necked shirt and pants, both dyed deep red. His eyes locked onto Sadie, despairing, betrayed, before he disappeared through the transfer room's door. Lovely eyes, the master remarked, handing her the completed claim forms. Can't wait to wear blue again. Sadie led it to the transfer center. As they passed through the second gate, the airy echoes of the tower gave way to softer, closer acoustics. The center's receiving room had jewel-toned walls, hardwood floors, and luxuriant furniture upholstered in rich, tasteful brocades. Soft strains of music played over the speakers. 
Incense burned in a censer on the mantel. Many masters liked to test their new senses after a transfer. This master gave everything a perfunctory glance as it passed through. Off the receiving room was the transfer chamber itself, two long metal tables, a tile floor set with drains, elegant mirror-glass walls which were easy to wash and sterilize. Through the open doorway, Sadie could see that Henri had already been strapped to the left table, face down with arms outstretched. His head was buckled in place on the chin rest, but in the mirrored wall, his eyes shifted to Sadie. There was nothing of anticipation in that gaze as there should have been. He knew to be afraid. Sadie looked away and bowed at the door as the master passed. The master walked toward the right-hand table, removing its shirt, and then paused as it noticed the room's door still open. It turned to her and lifted one of the body's eyebrows, plainly wanting privacy. Sadie swallowed, painfully aware of the passing seconds, of the danger of displeasing a master, of Henri's terrible, unwavering stare. She should stay. It was the least she could do after lying to Henri his whole life. She should stay and let his last sight through his own eyes be of someone who loved him and lamented his suffering. Thank you for choosing the Northeast Anthroproduction Facility, she said to the master. At Northeast, your satisfaction is always guaranteed. She closed the door and walked away. That night, Sadie dreamed of Henri. This was not unusual. Her dreams had always been dangerously vivid. As a child, she had sleepwalked, attacked others in the confusion of waking, heard voices when no one had spoken, bitten through her lip and nearly drowned in blood. Her caregivers sent away for a specialist who diagnosed her as something called bipolar, a defect of the brain chemistry. At the time, she had been distraught over this, but the policies were very clear. No master would have anything less than a perfect host. They could have sent her to disposal or the plantations. Instead, Sadie had been given medicines to stabilize her erratic neurotransmitters and then sent to another facility, Northeast, to begin training as a caregiver. She had done well. But though the other symptoms of her defect had eased with adulthood and medication, her dreams were still strong. This time, she stood in a vast meadow, surrounded by waist-high grass and summer flowers. She had only seen a meadow once, on the journey from her home anthro to caregiver training, and she had never actually walked through it. The ground felt uneven and soft under her feet, and a light breeze rustled the grass around her. Underneath the rustling, she thought she could hear snatches of something else, many voices whispering, though she could not make out the words. Sadie? Henri, behind her. She turned and stared at him. He was himself, his eyes wide with wonder. Yet she had heard the screams from the transfer room, smelled the blood and bile, 
seen his body emerge from the room and flash a satisfied smile that no 14-year-old boy should ever wear. It is you, Henri said, staring. I didn't think I would see you again. It was just a dream. Still, Sadie said, I'm sorry. It's okay. I didn't have a choice. I know. Henri sobered and sighed. I was angry at first, but then I kept thinking, it must be hard for you. You love us, but you give us to them, over and over. It's cruel of them to make you do it. Cruel, yes, but better than... She caught herself. Better than being chosen yourself. Henri looked away. Yes, it is. But he came to her, and they walked a while, listening to the swish of grass around their calves and smelling the strangely clean aroma of the dirt between their toes. I'm glad for this, Sadie said after a while. Her voice seemed strangely soft. The land here did not echo the way the smooth corridors of the facility did. To see you, even if it's just a dream. Henri spread his hands from his sides as they walked, letting the bobbing heads of flowers tickle his palms. You told me once that you used to go places when you dreamed. Maybe this is real. Maybe you're really here with me. That wasn't going to places. That was sleepwalking. And it was in the real world. Not like this. He nodded, silent for a moment. I wanted to see you again. I wanted it so much. Maybe that's why I'm here. He glanced at her, biting his bottom lip. Maybe you wanted to see me too. She had. But she could not bring herself to say so, because just thinking it made her hurt all over inside, like shaking apart. And the dream was fragile. Too much of anything would break it. She could feel that instinctively. She took his hand, though, the way she had so often when they were alive and alone. His fingers tightened on hers briefly, then relaxed. They had reached a hill which overlooked a landscape that Sadie had never seen before. Meadows and hills in a vast expanse, broken only occasionally by lone trees, and in the distance a knot of thick variegated green. Was that a jungle? A forest? What was the difference? She had no idea. The others think I came here because we used to be close, Henri said a little shyly. Also because you're so good at dreaming. It wouldn't matter me reaching out for you if you weren't meeting me halfway. Others? What are you talking about? Henri shrugged. It made his shirt, the low-necked smock she'd last seen him wearing, slip back a little, revealing the smooth, unblemished flesh of his neck and upper back. After the pain, there's nothing but the dark inside your head. If you shout, it sounds like a whisper. If you hit yourself, it feels like a pinch. Nothing works right except your thoughts and all you can think about is how much you want to be free. 
She had never let herself imagine this. Never, not once. These were the dangerous thoughts, the ones that threatened her ability to keep doing what the masters wanted, or to keep from screaming while she did those things. If she even thought the word free, she usually made herself immediately think about something else. She should not be dreaming about this. And yet, like picking at a scab, she could not help asking, Could you go to sleep? Or something? Stop thinking somehow? Pick, pick. It would be terrible to be trapped so forever, with no escape. Pick, pick. She had always thought that taking on a master meant nothingness, oblivion. This was worse. Henri turned to look at her, and she stopped. You're not alone in it, he said, whispering all around them both. She was sure of it now. His eyes were huge and blue and unblinking as they watched her. You're not the only person trapped in the dark. There's lots of others in here. With me. I... I don't... She didn't want to know. Pick. Pick. Everyone else the masters have taken. A master could live for centuries. How many bodies was that? How many other Henri's trapped in the silence, existing only as themselves in dreams? Dozens? All of us, from every master, down all the years that they've ruled us. Thousands, millions. And a few like you, ones without masters, but who are good at dreaming and want to be free the way we do. No one else can hear us. No one else needs to. Sadie shook her head. No. She put out a hand to touch Henri's shoulder, wondering if this might help her wake up. It felt just as she remembered, bony and soft and almost hot to the touch, as if the life inside him was much brighter and stronger than her own. I... I don't want to be... She can't say the word. Pick. Pick. We're all still here. We're dead, but we're still here. And... He hesitated, then ducked his eyes. The others say you can help us. No! She let go of him and stumbled back, shaking inside and out. She could not hear these dangerous thoughts. I don't want this! She woke in the dark of her cubicle, her face wet with tears. The next day, a master arrived in a woman's body. The body was not old at all, younger than Sadie, who was 40. Sadie checked the database carefully to make sure the master had a proper claim. I'm a dancer, the master said. I've been given special dispensation for the sake of my art. Do you have any females with a talent for dance? I don't think so, Sadie said. What about 1036? Olivia, who must have read the master's lips, came over to join them and smiled. She opted for the physical artistic track of training. 1036 loves to dance.
I'll take that one, the master said. She's only ten years old, Sadie said. She did not look at Olivia for fear the master would notice her anger. She might be too young to survive transfer. Oh, I'm very good at assuming control of a body quickly, the master said. Too much trauma would destroy its talent, after all. I'll bring her down, Olivia said, and Sadie had no choice but to begin preparing the forms. 1036 was beaming when Olivia brought her downstairs. The children from 10 had all been let out to line the stairway. They cheered that one of their yearmates had been granted the honor of an early transfer. They sang a song praising the masters and exhorting them to guide humankind well. 1036 was a bright, pretty child, long-limbed and graceful, Indo-Asian phenotype with a solid breeding history. Sadie helped Olivia strap her down. All the while, 1036 chattered away at them, asking where she would live and how she would serve and whether the master seemed nice. Sadie said nothing while Olivia told all the usual lies. The masters were always kind. 1036 would spend the rest of her life in the tall glass spires of the master's city, immersed in miracles and thinking unfathomable thoughts that human minds were too simple to manage alone. And she would get to dance all the time. When the master came in and lay down on the right-hand table, 1036 fell silent in awe. She remained silent, though Sadie suspected this was no longer due to awe, when the master tore its way out of the old body's neck and stood atop the twitching flesh, head tendrils and proboscis and spinal stinger steaming faintly in the cool air of the chamber. Then it crossed from one outstretched arm to the other and began inserting itself into 1036. It had spoken the truth about its skill. 1036 convulsed twice and threw up, but her heart never stopped, and the bleeding was no worse than normal. Perfect, the master said when it had finished. Its voice was now high-pitched and girlish. It sat down on one of the receiving room couches to run its fingers over the brocade, then inhaled the scented air. Marvelous sensory acuity. Excellent fine motor control, too. It's a bother to have to go through puberty again, but, well, every artist must make sacrifices. When it was gone, Sadie checked the master's old body. It, she was still breathing, though unresponsive and drooling. On Sadie's signal, two of the assistants escorted the body to disposal. Then she went to find Olivia. Don't ever contradict me in front of a master again, she said. She was too angry to sign, but she made sure she didn't speak too fast, despite her anger, so that Olivia could read her lips. Olivia stared at her. It's not my fault you didn't remember 1036. You're the head caregiver. Do your job. I remembered. I just didn't think it was right that a 10 be made to serve. She closed her mouth after that. Grateful Olivia couldn't hear her inflection and realized the sentence was incomplete. 
She had almost added a master who will throw her away as soon as she's no longer new. Olivia rolled her eyes. What difference does it make? Sooner, later, it's all the same. Anger shot through Sadie, hotter than she'd felt in years. Don't take it out on the children just because you can't serve, Olivia. Olivia flinched, then turned and walked stiffly away. Sadie gazed after her for a long while, first trembling as the anger passed, then just empty. Eventually, she went back into the transfer room to clean up. That night, Sadie dreamt again. This time she stood in a place of darkness, surrounded by the same whispering voices she'd heard before. They rose into coherency for only a moment before subsiding into murmurs again. Here, here, this place, remember, show her, never forget. The darkness changed. She stood on a high metal platform. Balcony said the whispers, overlooking a vast, white-walled room of the sort she had always imagined the glass towers of the masters to contain. This one was filled with strange machines hooked up to long rows of things like sinks. Laboratory. Each sink, there were hundreds in all, was filled with a viscous blue liquid, and in the liquid floated the speckled bodies of masters. Above the whisper, she heard a voice she recognized. This is where they came from. Henri. She looked around, somehow unsurprised that she could not see him. What? The scene before her changed. Now there were people moving among the sinks and machines. Their bodies were clothed from head to toe in puffy white garments, their heads covered with hoods. They scurried about like ants, tending the sinks and machines, busy, busy, busy. This was how masters were born? But Sadie had been taught that they came from the sky. That was never true, Henri said. They were created from other things, parasites, bugs and fungi and microbes, and more that force other creatures to do what they want. Henri had never talked like this in his life. Sadie had heard a few people talk like this, the rare caregivers educated with special knowledge like medicine or machinery. But Henri was just a facility child, just a body. He had never been special beyond the expected perfection. Most parasites evolved to take over other animals, he continued. If he noticed her consternation, he did not react to it. Only a few were any threat to us, but some people wondered if that could be changed. They put all the worst parts of the worst parasites together and tweaked and measured and changed them some more, and then they tested them on people they didn't like, people they thought didn't deserve to think for themselves. And eventually, they made something that worked. His face hardened suddenly into a mask of bitterness, like nothing Sadie had ever seen beyond her own mirror. All the monsters were right here. No need to go looking for more in space. Sadie frowned. Then the white room disappeared. 
She stood in a room more opulent than a transfer center's receiving room, filled with elegant furnishings and plants in pots and strange decorative objects on plinths. There was a big swath of cloth, garishly decorated with red stripes, and a square, patterned patch of blue, hanging from a polished pole in one corner. It seemed to have no purpose. A huge desk of beautiful dark wood stood to one side, and there were windows. Windows! All around her. She ignored the desk and all the rest, hurrying to the window for the marvel, the treasure of looking outside. She shouldered aside the rich, heavy hangings blocking the view and beheld... Fire. A world burnt dark and red. Above, smoke hung low in the sky, thick as clouds before a rainstorm. Below lay the smoldering ruins of what must once have been a city. A snarl and thump behind her, she spun, her heart pounding, to find that the opulent chamber now held people. Four men and women in neat black uniforms, wrestling a struggling fifth person onto the wooden desk. This fifth man, who was portly and in his fifties, fought as if demented, he punched and kicked and shouted until they turned him face down and pinned his arms and legs, ripping open his clothing at the back of the neck. A woman came in. She carried a large bowl in her hands, which she set down beside the now immobile man. Reaching into the bowl, she lifted out a master. It flexed its limbs and then focused its head tendrils on the man's neck. When it grew still, the woman set the master on him. No! Against all reason, against all her training, Sadie found herself starting forward. She didn't know why. It was just a transfer. She had witnessed hundreds. But it was wrong. Wrong! Pick, pick. He was too old, too fat, too obviously ill-bred. Was he being punished? It did not matter. Wrong. It had always been wrong. She reached blindly for one of the decorative objects on a nearby plinth, a heavy piece of stone carved to look like a bird in flight. With this in her hands, she ran at the people in black, raising the stone to swing at the back of the nearest head. The master plunged its stinger into the pinned man's spine and he began to scream. But this did not stop her. Nothing would stop her. She would kill this master, as she should have killed the one that took Henri. No, Sadie. The stone bird was no longer in her hands. The strangers and the opulent room were gone. She stood in darkness again, and this time Henri stood before her, his face weary with the sorrow of centuries. We should fight them. Sadie clenched her fists at her sides, her throat choked with emotions she could not name. We never fight. I never fight. We fought before, with weapons like yours and much more. We fought so hard we almost destroyed the world. And in the end, all that did was make it easier for them to take control. 
They're monsters. Pleasure. Such shameful pleasure to say those words. They're what we made them. She stared at him, finally understanding. You're not Henri. He fell silent for a moment, hurt. I'm Henri, he said at last. The terrible age-old bitterness seemed to fade from his eyes, though never completely. I just know things I didn't know before. It's been a long time for me here, Sadie. I feel a lot older. It had been two days. Anyway, I wanted you to know how it happened. Since you can hear me, since I can talk to you, I feel like you should know. He reached out and took her hand again, and she thought of the way he had first done this, back when he had been nothing more than 547. She'd taken his hand to lead him somewhere, and he'd looked up at her. Syllables had come into her mind, just a random pair of sounds. Henri. Not as elegant as the names that the masters had bestowed upon Sadie and her fellow caregivers, and she had never used his name where others could hear, but when they were alone together, she had called him that, and he had liked it. If you had a way to fight them, he said, watching her intently, would you? Dangerous, dangerous thoughts. But the scabs were off, all picked away, and too much of her had begun to bleed. Yes. No, I... I don't know. She felt empty inside. The emotion that had driven her to attack the masters was gone, replaced only by weariness. Still, she remembered the desperate struggles of the captured man in her dream. Like Henri, that man had faced his final moments alone. Perhaps he, too, had been betrayed by someone close. We'll talk again, he said. And then she woke up. Like a poison, the dangerous ideas from the dreams began leaching from her sleeping mind into her waking life. On fifth days, Sadie taught the class called History and Service. She usually took the children up on the roof for the weekly lesson. The roof had high walls around the edges, but was otherwise open to the world. Above, the walls framed a perfect circle of sky, painfully bright in its blueness. They could also glimpse the topmost tips of massive glass spires, the master's city. Once, Sadie told the children, people lived without masters, but we were undisciplined and foolish. We made the air dirty with poisons we couldn't see, but which killed us anyway. We beat and killed each other. This is what people are like without masters to guide us and share our thoughts. One little six female held up her hand. How did those people live without masters? She seemed troubled by the notion. How did they know what to do? Weren't they lonely? They were very lonely. They reached up to the skies looking for other people. That's how they found the masters. 
Two caregivers were required to be with the children any time they went up on the roof. At Sadie's last words, Olivia, sitting near the back of the children's cluster, frowned and narrowed her eyes. Sadie realized abruptly that she had said, they found the masters. She had intended to say, was supposed to say, that the masters had found humankind. They had benevolently chosen to leave the skies and come to earth to help the ignorant, foolish humans survive and grow. That was never true. Quickly, Sadie shook her head to focus and amended herself. The masters had been waiting in the sky. As soon as they knew we would welcome them, they came to earth to join with us. After that, we weren't lonely anymore. The six females smiled, as did most of the other children, pleased that the masters had done so much for their sake. Olivia rose when Sadie did and helped usher the children back to their cells. She said nothing, but glanced back and met Sadie's eyes once. There was no censure in her face, but the look lingered, contemplative with ambition. Sadie kept her own face expressionless. But she did not sleep well that night, so she was not surprised that when she finally did, she dreamt of Henri once more. They stood on the roof of the facility, beneath the circle of sky, alone. Henri wasn't smiling this time. He reached for Sadie's hand right away, but Sadie pulled her hand back. Go away, she said. I don't want to dream about you anymore. She had not been happy before these dreams, but she had been able to survive. The dangerous thoughts were going to get her killed, and he just kept giving her more of them. I want to show you something first, he said. He spoke very softly, his manner subdued. Please, just one more thing, and then I'll leave you alone for good. He had never yet lied to her. With a heavy sigh, she took his hand. He pulled her over to one of the walls around the rooftop's edge, and they began walking up the air, as if an invisible staircase had formed beneath their feet. Then they reached the top of the wall, and Sadie stopped in shock. It was the city of the masters, and yet not. She had glimpsed the city once as a young woman, that second trip from caregiver training to northeast. Here again were the huge structures that had so awed her, some squat and some neck-achingly high, some squarish and some pointy at the tops some flagrantly, defiantly asymmetrical buildings. On the ground far below, in the spaces between the tall structures, she could see long ribbons of dark, hard ground neatly marked with lines, roads. Thousands of tiny colored objects moved along the lines, stopping and progressing in some ordered ritual whose purpose she could not fathom. Vehicles. Even tinier specks moved beside and between and in and out of the colored things, obeying no ritual whatsoever. People. Many, many people. And there was something about this chaos, 
something so subtly counter to everything she knew about the masters, that she understood at once these were people without masters. They had built the vehicles and they had built the roads. They had built the whole city. They were free. A new word came into her head in whispers. Revolution! Henri gestured at the city and it changed, becoming the city she remembered, the city of now. Not so different in form or function, but very different in feel. Now the air was clean and reeked of other. Now the moat people she saw were not free, and everything they'd built was a pale imitation of what had gone before. Sadie looked away from the tainted city. Maybe the drugs had stopped working. Maybe it was her defective mind that made her yearn for things that could never be. Why did you show me this? She whispered the words. All you know is what they told you, and they tell you so little. They think if we don't know anything, they'll be able to keep control. And they're right. How can you want something you've never seen, don't have the words for, can't even imagine? I wanted you to know. And now she did. I... I want it. It was an answer to his question from the last dream. If you had a way to fight them, would you? I want to. How much, Sadie? He was looking at her again, unblinking. Not Henri, and yet not a stranger. You gave me to them because it was all you knew to do. Now you know different. How much do you want to change things? She hesitated against a lifetime's training, a lifetime's fear. I don't know. But I want to do something. She was angry again. Angrier than she'd been at Olivia. Angrier than she'd been throughout her whole life. So much had been stolen from them. The masters had taken so much from her. She looked at Henri and thought, no more. He nodded, almost to himself. The whispers all around them rose for a moment, too. She thought that they sounded approving. There is something you can do, he said, something we think will work, but it will be hard. She shook her head fiercely. It's hard now. He stepped close and put his arms around her waist, pressing his head against her breast. I know. This was so much like other times, other memories, that she sighed and put her arms around him as well, stroking his hair and trying to soothe him, even though she was the one still alive. The children and caregivers in the facilities will be all that's left when we're done, he whispered against her. No one with a master will survive. But the masters can't live more than a few minutes without our bodies. Even if they survive the initial shock, they won't get far. Startled, she took hold of his shoulders and pushed him back. His eyes shone with unshed tears. What are you saying? she asked. He smiled, despite the tears. 
They say that if you die in a dream, you'll die in real life. We can use you if you let us. Channel what we feel through you. He sobered, and we already know how it feels to die, several billion times over. You can't. She did not want to understand. It frightened her that she did. Henri, you and, and the others, you can't just die. He reached up and touched her cheek. No, we can't. But you can. The master was injured. Rather, its body was. A spasm of the heart, something that could catch even them by surprise. Another master had brought it in, hauling its comrade limp over one shoulder, shouting for Sadie even before the anthro facility's ground-level doors had closed in its wake. She told Caridad to run ahead and open the transfer chamber, and signed for Olivia to grab one of the children. Any healthy body was allowed in an emergency. The master was still alive within its old, cooling flesh, but it would not be for much longer. When the masters reached the administrative level, Sadie quickly waved it toward the transfer chamber, pausing only to grab something from her cubicle. She slipped this into the waistband of her pants and followed at a run. You should leave, sir, she told the one who'd carried the dying master in as she expertly buckled the child onto the other transfer table. An eighteen female, almost too old to be claimed, Olivia was so thoughtful. Too many bodies in a close space will be confusing. She had never seen a master try to take over a body that was already occupied, but she'd been taught that it could happen if the master was weak enough or desperate enough. Seconds counted in a situation like this. Yes, yes, you're right, said the master. Its body was big and male, strong and healthy, but effort and fear had sapped the strength from its voice. It sounded distracted and anxious. Yes, all right, thank you. It headed out to the receiving room. That was when Sadie threw herself against the transfer room door and locked it, with herself still inside. Sadie? Olivia knocking on the door's other side, but transfer chambers were designed for the master's comfort. They could lock themselves in if they felt uncomfortable showing vulnerability around the anthro facility's caregivers. Olivia would not be able to get through. Neither would the other master. Not until it was too late. Trembling, Sadie turned to face the transfer tables and pulled the letter opener from the waistband of her pants. It took several tries to kill the 18 female. The girl screamed and struggled as Sadie stabbed and stabbed. Finally, though, she stopped moving. By this time, the master had extracted itself from its old flesh. It stood on the body's bloody shoulders, head tendrils waving and curling uncertainly toward the now useless 18. You have no choice, Sadie told it. Such a shameful thrill to speak to a master this way. Such madness, this freedom. I'm all there is. But she wasn't alone. 
She could feel them now somewhere in her mind, Henri and the others, a thousand million memories of terrible death, coiled and ready to be flung forth like a weapon. Through Henri, through Sadie, through the master that took her, through every master in every body, they would all dream of death and die in waking too. No revolution without blood, no freedom without the willingness to die. Then she pulled off her shirt, staring into her own eyes in the mirrored wall as she did so, and lay down on the floor, ready. Welcome back. You just heard Walking Awake by N.K. Jemison, read by Bonnie Turpin. If you enjoyed this, you should check out lightspeedmagazine.com where you can purchase the entire issue. Did I mention it was big? It's a big issue. A lot of content there. Or you can subscribe to our podcast. You can rate us on iTunes or you can leave a comment at the website. There's so much you can do at lightspeedmagazine.com. It's unbelievable. Okay, you can probably believe it, but it's really a lot of stuff. Lightspeed Magazine is normally edited by John Joseph Adams, but for the special Women Destroying Science Fiction issue, we're edited by Christy Yant. We are still being produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They're headed up by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Brudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out the website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound are composed by Jack Kincaid. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with Jim Freund. This podcast is copyright 2014 by Lightspeed Magazine. And we'll see you next time. Women destroy science fiction. Lightspeed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.